Digital People podcast. Today we're talking about give and receive positive feedback. And this is a chapter in the book written by Helge Gudmundsson. Hi, Helge. And I'm joined on the interview panel with uh, by um, Flo Kaminska of the Agile People Collective. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, David. Hello. Ex- hello. Excellent. So, Yes, fantastic. So we're going to hand you over to Helge. Helge is going to tell us a bit about himself, his involvement with Agile People uh, and his chapter in the book. Over to you, Helge. Welcome. Thank you. Where to start? Um, So I kind of serve as the director of uh, trainer experiences with uh, Agile People um, on on the leadership team. Um, I'm also an active contributor and co-author to some of the some of the courses that Agile People offers around the world. Um, how I came to join. How far back do you want me to go, David? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as far back as you, I mean, you're not that old. You're not as old as me, that's for yeah. sure. Um, and so you, you don't have much of a history. <laughs> Well, I mean, but you the, have a lot of experience uh, crammed into yeah. those those short years. Um, some of that back history is that um, I'm originally from Iceland, so born and born and raised there. And in 2011, the fall of 2011, we sort of relocated to Sweden to Gothenburg. Um, mostly chasing my wife who's a doctor and uh it was it was time for her to um well it was her, the next on her agenda was to complete her specialty which wasn't uh, possible back in iceland okay. it helped things along but they, we were in the middle of a, a financial crisis at the time so uh, <laughs> economic and, and sort of uh, work prospects back in iceland were a bit on the tough end but it was kind of a transition for me i had had kind of a multiple different careers Back there, back in Iceland, uh, department uh, chasing people around on ambulances, over to sales and marketing, and uh, quite a few years in the tourist industry. Um, and then I had a parallel career as well, uh, being very active in different kind of I don't know what you call it, social enterprises, kind of um, not for profits, NGOs. And so one of the last things I did back in Iceland before sort of uh, packing packing it together uh, was uh, I wound up in charge of uh, an organizational transformation took place over about 18 months with uh, one of those uh, social enterprises that uh, found itself in quite a lot of trouble let's say uh, in the in the financial crisis mm-hmm. um, then we packed moved to Sweden no language no contacts a 10 month old uh, child spent the first year more or less home so to sort of get my start into having any prospects of uh, properly working here um i decided to go back to school so i had a friend who was uh, taking classes in occupational organizational psychology i was incorporating all the time more and more all kinds of ideas from social psychology and group psychology and from an amateur perspective i would say um so i went into that and um spent the next four years five years really um digging into that kind of psychology did a one-year deep dive into um conflict resolution uh, between individuals and groups and uh, working with complex issues at, at organization level and out of that the obvious course of action was you know 
straight into HR. Obviously, that's the that's the that's the. <laughs> I can see um, that natural path. <clears throat> yeah, but um, obviously, you still had to do some job hunting, and and part of my journey there was uh, like, how do I make the connections? I had been networking quite a bit for like the year eighteen months. Um, so I had uh, several HR managers in my network, and one of them very explicitly told me that if I was serious about HR, I needed to look into Agile. Okay. That's where HR was headed. Mm -hmm. And Agile was a, I had heard of it. I had never really dug into it too much. Um, but me being me, I started doing that. I started looking at a whole boatload of, you know, conference talks and reading a lot of books and articles and trying to sort of form a picture of it. Um, found myself pretty much with, a, with sort of a dual reaction. None of it was new, new to me. This was essentially the operating model when you're working in social enterprises and NGOs with volunteers. You never have command authority, so you have to learn to lead with, by, you know, fostering collaboration with people, you know? As soon as you try to control them with traditional managerial tactics, they vote with their feet and off they go. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the team level stuff as well. I mean, I think I made most of the mistakes that you can find anywhere with teams. I think, uh, and eventually, like not being too thick headed, I learned to do it slightly better. And everything that I had found worked with in teamwork aligned pretty closely with what I was finding out about Agile. Long story short, at some point I came to the decision, um, if I want to work in this, I have to get some certification somewhere. So I was looking into different actors and I had um, made friends with a guy here in Gothenburg who sort of said, you know, if you're thinking about HR, there's actually a person out of Gothenburg that works with Agile HR. Maybe you should look her up. Uh, <laughs> So I did, and um, and Pia, <clears throat> um, I was looking at attending some course. I, this was like uh, this must have been like March, April, something like that. April, early May, maybe. And I was looking at courses that were maybe starting up in the fall that it would be smart to go. And then I looked her up, and she was starting a course in Stockholm like a week later. So I reached out, um, found myself there. And as soon as I step into the room, she basically, um, like, howdy neighbor. It turns out we live less than two kilometers away from each other. <laughs> <in Gothenburg>. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> which, which, which year was this, um, Helge? This was like early 20, 2017, maybe. Okay. okay. So, so not, not, not um, so long ago. Yep. So, um, so that was a bit me down the rabbit hole. I like to joke about like, this is the kind of stuff that um, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. Traditional HR, this pretty much kind of uh, struck that out for me. I, I literally had no interest. Like most of the things, if you look at most of the job announcements, et cetera, like they, they most of them make the demand that you have to have, I don't know, five plus years, three, five years experience in traditional HR. I couldn't for the life of me imagine going going and spending three to five years in traditional HR just to qualify for any kind of um, 
So, um, and then what was it? Maybe I went on board with the Agile People Sweden conference organizing team. Uh, so I was part of that. This was, uh, that was the conference that was in, I think, 2018. And then Pierre reached out um, about leadership, knowing that I had worked quite a bit with, uh, with leadership and, and team development and whether I would be interested in collaborating on creating a new track that IC Agile had just put together which was called ALP at the time. So we spent some time on that, um, did a pilot version of the first Agile leadership class, which was, uh, it was intense. Uh, it was literally a pilot. We got about 16 people uh, to attend it. Um, some of them flying in from New York and other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. We threw everything but the kitchen sink at them. We were literally testing any kind of um, activity, exercise, whatever would it work or wouldn't work we later probably cut 25 percent of the content because it just turned out not to be viable and as soon as we launched that i joined the agile people core team and i've been part of that since oh, fantastic okay. well, and uh, as i understand it helgi so more recently you decided with a team of other trainers or authors to actually put together an agile people manifesto because it was the agile manifesto that you wanted yeah. to what, what, what motivates, because this article that you've written, this chapter, is very related to the Agile People Manifesto, right? It's, uh, it's uh, under one of the pillars. Uh, what drove you, you as a team to actually explicit those Agile People principles versus the Agile principles? Yeah, the whole premise of that was, um, as with so many things in, in, in Agile people, like we are so fortunate that we have such an active uh, global community. Um, so we had the idea of, uh, it was about time for us to do some kind of a coach camp. And, um, and as part of that, uh, the idea was thrown like, what about trying to come up with some kind of a like, would it be would it be make any sense to come up with a manifesto of some sorts for agile people um so we pia sent out a message and you know 19 people showed up from around the world uh and it was very much an emergent process i would say uh we started with that question yeah the original agile manifesto like i i still stand by the four core values of that one it's um agreed um, particularly the first and the fourth has always been kind of, um, you know, people, people and interactions over processing tools and, uh, in particular, um, but the 12 principles, I mean, it literally says, uh, you know, the manifesto for software development in the title. Mm and there there have been various um there is actually kind of an agile hr manifesto somewhere out there that more or less copies the style of the original agile manifesto um but agile people it felt like we were in kind of a divergent path like we weren't and that's been that's very much been the case um i would i would make the case that agile people is a lot more about people agility in general and to a larger degree, business agility, mm -hmm. um, rather than necessarily this thing that we call agile in and of itself. Yeah. So 
we just started up with this. Uh, we decided it would be an open, um, sort of an open space format. We started with, you know, all gathering all kinds of ideas, doing the whole divergent thing. Um, after the first day, we had literally covered all of the walls of that particular room with all kinds of ideas. And yeah, so we spent the next two or three days sort of hashing it together and, and, and drafting up sort of the first. And then we spent probably a few weeks after that, I think it was something like five or six meetings where, where uh, some of the original 19 authors um, kept at it, sort of refining the language, etc. Um, I think you do get the sense when you read the Agile People Manifesto that um, one thing, for example, um, I forget exactly how we came to it, but most of the statements in the Agile People Manifesto are essentially phrased as a form of a user story. So the idea is that you're able to use that and it should generate whatever in, the, in whatever context they sort of uh, you find yourself, mm -hmm. it should start generating um, essentially ideas for a backlog, some action items that you might want uh, to do. Trigger, to a exactly, it should trigger conversation. It, it, it should trigger idea generation. Um, so it's more of a catalyst, I would say. Um, you know, not to knock the Agile Manifesto in any way. I mean, it's it stands the test of time, but but at the same time, the original, like the authors of the Agile Manifesto back from Snowbird, they they made the deliberate choice to never update it. Right. Um, a choice that I kind of support. Um, I've I've heard the case from Alistair Coburn and others that. Uh, um, like it would have suffice, it would have been suffice to for one per one person of the seventeen that was there to, for somebody else to have been there and they would have wound up with a different manifesto. So you can always, you know, hack mm -hmm. at it. Um. So it's catalyzed a lot of things, uh, but agile is meant agile, obviously, or agility is essentially about responsiveness. It's about adaptiveness. It never stops. Mm. Um, even our Agile People Manifesto is, uh, what is it now? A couple of years old? Um, yeah. Like if, it's always this open debate. Should you refine or should you add or or, or should you update such a thing? Or should it stand there as a, as a kind of an inspiration and uh, for people to, to come to their own things? Mm. Um, I'm still quite proud of that particular uh, piece of work. Um, and it wasn't an easy birth, I can tell you that. I remember one evening in particular where we had a bloody heat, heated debate out on the out on the patio at uh, where we were staying there in, 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 in Smögen in, in Sweden. Um, something along the lines of... Um, like there was a there, were, there was a large group that was, that was quite comfortable with the open space format and you know trust the process and come to the end of it like whatever comes out of it will come out of it but there were people there who wanted like you know there are actually templates for how to write these things like why are we wasting all of this time on all of this unnecessary discussion why don't we just follow the template and we have something ready like before lunch tomorrow and <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in the end uh, 
but it's like with anything else, like, you know, um, interesting things arrive in the world through a, a form of birth, um, yeah. Yeah. a form of labor. And this was very much a labor of, I think, love for most of us who was there. The complex labor, but a baby that you still very much love. So that's, and that is growing, as you say, you know, it's, yeah. it's evolving and growing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I'm curious that, you know, I understand the Agile People Manifesto is split into pillars that you, um, you identified. And your particular focus on feedback and positive feedback, not the feedback, then the yep. diversity, safety, and belonging. How come did you select this particular topic under that pillar? What is it in that topic that you know made you feel it really deserved a full article? Full chapter, sorry, not an article, chapter. Because it's a debate, it's a debated topic. Um, I very much strike the tone. Um, obviously, I was writing about one of the other people' principles. But that, being, but that being said, I had been reading stuff about. I've, I've had a lot of inspiration, for example, for example, from the work of uh, Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall and others, uh, Carol Sanford, to name a few. And it's kind of a spectrum uh, ranging from feedback, the way that we're giving feedback is misguided to at the hardcore edge of it that we, we just shouldn't be giving feedback, period. Um, and what I found kind of interesting about the whole thing is that it's very hard for me to make the case that it's a good idea for anybody to build a feedback culture. It's extremely difficult. But, but, yeah, that's, but you have whole programs about that and there's, oh, there's entire budgets uh, dedicated to this and in a lot of large scale organizations and and it's all kind of predicated on a certain kind of feedback and it's uh, all kind of predicated on a certain set of assumptions which simply aren't supported yeah. to a large degree. So, so which assumptions are those? Um, one of the big ones is that we obviously like if we're, if we are to have any kind of opportunity to to grow and develop ourselves, we need feedback. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, so that's, that's not supported in any way. At least it depends on the type of feedback, which is why we oriented the whole chapter around giving and receiving positive feedback. Um, so what I explore in the chapter a little bit is three types of like, we can reframe feedback to it's a form of sort of focused attention. That would be one way of describing it. And um, what you find in most organizations is kind of three types of uh, focused attention or two types of focused attention and one type of lack of attention, I would say, that is to say, ignoring people. Um, 
And then the two types of focused attention are obviously catching people when they get things wrong, when they make mistakes, and then, um, you know, um, giving them some sort of constructive feedback, how they should fix it or how they, how they should improve themselves. And the third type of feedback would be appreciative attention, uh, which I would define as catching people when they are at their best, when they get things right, when they're, you know, when they have one of those moments that uh, like it's, it's a home run kind of moment, um, if we use the sports analogy. All of the research that we know, all of the brain research, all of the research about essentially what triggers our different kinds of responses, fight flight versus learning responses and other things. It essentially it essentially says like a popular thing that's, uh, that's quite uh, uh, spoken about right now basically uh, says that for any one type of negative attention that you receive, you should get four or five pieces of positive. That's the optimal balance. Essentially, the case is that our brains are more or less wired to be on the lookout for threats, four to five times more um, focused on um, be on the lookout for threats. And we all know this. The classic example would be um, let's say that you share a piece of social media. Let's say you put uh, a labor of love into, uh, into writing something that you share on social media. You have 99 people who show up and say, love your thoughts, David. Um, uh, really, really great share. And then one person comes and says, this is just completely bonkers. This is horrible. How can you even think this? That's going to keep you up that night. That well, one person. Can, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so are we, look, could we make any kind of case that over the whole in any kind of organization that people are giving each other four to five times more appreciative attention than negative attention? No, I would say it's the opposite. For any one positive comment that you hear, you're probably getting between five to 10 negative types of comments. So you're, you're basically making the thing worse. Yeah. Um, so why is this a false assumption? Um, it might be a little bit technical to go into this, but um, I do sort of explain some of it in the chapter that we have something called the sympathetic system that's at play in our, in, in our brain wiring. This is essentially the thing that sort of regulates our uh, response to threats. And it's very rapid. It's almost below thought, like it's it's a microsecond. It's the thing that kept you alive, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago, like when you were literally faced with a threat that could kill you. Um, so it's not really within our control all that much. Um, but essentially what it does in the brain is it shuts off your ability to think through a situation. You just react. Um, so the other type of system is the, is the parasympathetic system, which is rest and digest. It sort of puts us in a re nice, relaxed, receptive, open kind of, uh, um, think about, for example, a coaching session or some kind of conversation therapy session or something like that. Um, they're all predicated on the fact that we can create a nice, relaxed, trusting relationship that can lead to openness 
that can people lead people to sharing and to feel safe enough to do that. So when we give people constructive feedback, which of these systems do you suppose we're triggering? The negative type of attention. We're essentially triggering the system that shuts off our thinking brain in the purpose of doing what now? Um, helping people develop and grow, learn. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like the whole thing is just absurd. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the big one. Um, some other assumptions are that, um, that you can accurately rate me, that you're an accurate rater of my performance somehow. So um, something that really made the headlines a number of years ago was uh, they, they actually did a big, big study on this. Uh, and out of it came something that sent shockwaves throughout um, whole industries, which was called, um, they, they coined a term for it, the, the idiosyncratic rater bias. <laughs> yeah. So what, what they essentially found was this. Uh, when you looked at uh, some kind of systems where people were being rated en masse, uh, the rating system didn't actually say that much about the people being rated, but it demonstrated clear patterns about the person rating the other people, which is to say that we are, as people, we are categorically unable to rate other people without being biased. Um, and that's setting aside the whole argument that even if you could be unbiased, um, are you an authority about me? Are we the same people? Yeah. Uh, Marcus Buckingham talks about this, for example, as a, it's a theory of excellence. Can we separate excellent from the excellence from the person that is being excellent? Can we sort of objectively define excellence? excellence and the three of us we would all show up uh, in, a, in a similar manner if we were being excellent at something there's a football tournament going on around around, around the world right now right um take the top 10 or top 100 players around the world that we would categorize as excellent they're not remotely similar in any way shape or form like they have the same basic maybe foundation, but they've all developed their own unique style. They're all excellent in their own unique way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So would, would Ronaldo be a good source of um, excellence about, no, I'm not a football uh, fan in any way. Give me, give me another excellent player, David. <laughs> F football player, you mean pastor current? Yeah. Uh, well, so, it's funny. We, we, the other week there, we talked to um, Gustavo Couto, and he was talking yep. about sort of teams around the world. You know, and 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 uh, you know, he's from Brazil, and he he talked quite um, eloquently about. Um, so sometimes, why the Brazilian team, the greatest team in the world um, by far, and um, for a number of years, um, and and he gave me various years where those teams didn't win the World Cup. It seemed, it seemed incredulous to the rest of the world those teams didn't win the World Cup. And the reason th that came out was because they focused on some of those individuals as part of the team, not the team itself. The things that made Brazil great in the past 
you know, we we can talk about the individual players, of course, but it was the, their teams. It was their actual um, philosophy, the way that they played, the way they approached the game. That was what they was considered. It wasn't about the individual. Now, we can talk yeah. about the individuals of the past. We could talk about the Pelés and the Ronaldos and stuff like that. You know, yeah. great players, great players. But if they're not part or playing part of a great team or, or you know, the team is not playing with them, then, you know, there's, there's your reason for not achieving that goal. And in football yeah. terms, it's winning. In organizational terms, it's succeeding. You know. Yes. It's when the connection is not there between the players. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's interesting, Helgi. You know what you're saying, which I can fully relate to in terms of you know we're talking about excellent players and you know people uh, that already display um, you know a high level of excellence, even if it's different. So judging them would mean that you put yourself in the shoes of knowing even how to. Well, that's first you can judge others, which is a bit of a concept in itself, right? Why should you be able to judge others? And even more, you know, how can you judge excellence? But what happens when um, we're talking about people who are struggling and not performing? Yeah. Um, so not performing and therefore also impacting other people in the organization, impacting the results. Huh? What happens there? I mean, what would you say? Uh, where does positive feedback plays a role there? Well, anybody who's raised kids knows this, correct? <laughs> uh, when kids are struggling at school, how effective is it as a strategy to, to be on their case about everything that they're doing wrong? So what parents are trained to do is look for the smallest indication of, like, look at, look at, like it, it could be a micro step, but if it's a, if it's a good one, bring their attention to that one. Like uh, be on the lookout for anything that feels uh, like, like a small step towards pr progress. Mm -hmm. um, because that starts to shift uh, the narrative a bit. Um, talk about the issue though. Some individual, I mean, you know, I come from a child background, and objectively, even with all my good intention of you know giving positive feedback, there might be some some situations where the individual needs to also address things that he or she is doing and that is a problem yeah. for the others, right? Yeah. Okay. So, look, this is a bit of a nuanced. Um, the best way that I've really found to approach this that's that that's where i'm currently at in terms of how to explain the whole thing about feedback and obviously uh, working in an agile environment we talk about like a lot of ag agile and agile approaches are predicated on the view that we need rapid uh, feedback loops yeah it seems to me that we have made sort of an erroneous assumption that uh, feedback loops automatically involves other people giving me feedback. The fact of the matter is, and this is something that uh, Carol Sanford uh, makes the case for um, in her book, is that most of us have sort of an innate drive to be self-regulating to some degree 
self-improving and self-challenging given the right conditions. Uh, that is to say, we have an inner, like we can talk about it in terms of locus of control. Um, are we inner directed or are we outer directed? And so I would make the case, it's rarely, how to phrase this in the best possible way. I think I bring up the quote from uh, in, in the chapter from Deming. You know, he's, he's famous for his 95 five rule. Uh, more accurately, I think he said uh, up to 85% of the reason for uh, deficiencies uh, in performance, they, they are systemic. Mm. They're not individual. Yeah. So I think one of the big fallacies here is that, okay, some we have a person who is not performing. Um, so we make it the responsibility of the person to fix themselves or, or, or something like that. Um, and we bring an awful lot of ammunition and an awful lot of attention to fixing and improving the individuals in the system on a one-by-one -one basis. When do we actually stop to um, analyze to the same degree? What about the 85%? What about the system surrounding them? Yeah. What, how should we go about, are there things we could go about uh, improving like in the, in, in the, in the bigger picture? We, we tend to completely ignore that. So we're essentially um, putting the blame for lack of performance on people. Um, and, you know, the thing that's, uh, that's responsible for, you know, 85 to 95% of their performance, we're completely ignoring that. Put the, put the, put the best person in the world, like using the football analogy, take... Uh, uh, take a rock star footballer, put them into a, a relatively dysfunctional team, is that team going to win the World Cup? It's more likely that the team will drag that individual down to their level than that the individual will drag them up to their level. That's just the truth of it. Now, to be fair, we are part of the system. So obviously, yes, there are things that we can... Um, um, part of saying that it's the system is that part of it is a social system of which, to which we belong. But even there, um, I would start looking at the interactions between people. Mm. What's the quality of the interactions here? Coming back to the types of attention, it's quite remarkable actually. There was a, there was a study on that, um, like that, that stuff, the negative attention, the positive attention and, and ignoring people. Um, Gallup did a study on this. I think it was back in like 2013 or 2012 or something like that. Yeah. And um, so when you ignore people, for every one person engaged, you have 60 disengaged. That was the result. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm citing it wrong. For every one person engaged, you have 20 people disengaged. When you just focused on critiquing people and catching their mistakes and, and, and having them fix their mistakes, for every two people engaged, you had one person disengaged. When you focused on the appreciative attention, on the other hand, for every one person disengaged, you had 60 people engaged. So can I make you insecure about yourself by ignoring you? 
or by directing comments towards you that are not like you're not performing for some reason and I and I catch you and critique you and that kind of thing is that could that be contributing to this person but we tend to just focusing focus on that person they need to fix themselves what about the other people surrounding them how do we support that what about the what about the larger system at play how does that support that like it takes a village to some degree that's a phrase right um it's interesting because here we're coming back to where do you place your attention right so as a manager you can place your attention on you know what matters and will will have the biggest effect and when you're saying so you know, your attention as a manager at least first uh, because maybe there is something with the person i think that we should always take into consideration there might be but the first uh, um, attention should be on what are the conditions creating that behavior or that poor performance there yeah Look, here's the thing, and this is a this is a human principle that I was just kind of reminded of recently. Um, it's funny, you know, when you work with this in the adult game, uh, you can still be caught out. Um, so, without going into too too much details, uh, our six year old has had have been going through a little bit of a challenging period, uh, sort of acting out, etc. Our responses to that weren't uh, were obviously not uh, being super conductive. Um, you know, so we, my wife signed us up for one of those classes aimed at parents here in Sweden. And I forget his name, there's a, there's an American psychologist and, and the class is sort of based on his work. And um, literally the first thing that comes, you know, kids will behave if they can. That they don't is, you know, it's a situation or it's some, it's 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 a it's a number of factors that um, are overwhelming their sort of sense of control. Mm-hmm. And the damnedest thing was that as soon as I said, <laughs> as soon as I looked looked at this, like literally, what do we preach in, in agile people? You know, <laughs> McGregor, McGregor's theory X and Y. People will perform if they can. I think is a thing that we can extrapolate. If they don't, it's a number of factors, interpersonal and systemic, that are basically triggering their fight, flight, freeze, triggering, you know, basically limiting their ability to do so. Um, We tend to focus on trying to correct the individual when maybe it's us surrounding them that should be adapting our response. Mm. this goes for kids and parents and i think that's where a lot of this stuff starts actually (laughs) yeah yeah it's quite interesting that you mentioned this experience with children because the other day i was listening to a program where they were talking about uh, very much education around appreciative um, feedback for children right Uh, which um has become you know more and more popular and uh, certainly that you see also in in schools in the ways that teachers are are training the uh, the kids Um, and they were saying that you know the danger of this is that they see generations, young generations coming out, um, who are used to receiving appreciation for, in a way, whatever they do, right? Yep. Uh, the, the advice was, you know, whatever small, always, you know, make it appreciative. So that um, comes to the point when they become young adults that they find it difficult to face failure. Yeah? 
find it difficult to stretch themselves beyond what they can immediately do and get appreciation for. Yep. And also the attention and perseverance over time, especially when things get a bit you know, tough and the appreciation might not be coming as easily as before. So that there was a kind of warning to that approach there. What, what, what is your opinion on that? Um, I'm reminded of, um, like I, I would give uh, any listeners here uh, the tip. It is a radical perspective on this. Like literally it says on the title of her book, uh, Carol Sanford um, really, really shook a lot of my own personal thinking and, and beliefs around this thing. Her book is called No More Feedback. So she takes the flat out approach. We should eliminate all kinds of feedback, even the positive one. Um, I'm not certain I'm willing to go entirely over there. Um, but her, her take on it is this, like, we're not making the case here. Like when we're saying that there's a lot of stuff that we are making flawed assumptions about regarding feedback, etc. like, we're not making the case in any way, shape or form that it doesn't work. It absolutely 100% does. Um, so the, so something that she lays out in her book is, um, what we want to trigger in people are sort of three core capacities. Um, one of them is where is our source of agency coming from? Uh, second is where's our locus of control? Is it externally based or internally based? And third is something she calls scope of consideration or essentially this case, like, are we only taking into account our own perspectives on things, like being quite egotistical about stuff? Are we hyper-focused on other people's perspective on things? And she presents this as a kind of a spectrum, mm -hmm. right? We can be too much on one end or too much on the other end. So the long and the short of it is this, whatever form of feedback we give, it's addictive. Uh, it literally fires up the dopamine centers of our brain. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that social media like Facebook and all of that kind of stuff is, is, is trying to hijack. And the net effect is the more we become addicted to that kind of feedback, whether it's negative or positive, the, lo the locus of control shifts from being internal to external. So something that really developed my thinking on this, this is, this is part of uh, what we have obviously in our curriculum. Like if you look at uh, the theories around human, adult human development, a mm -hmm. um, lot of people have been doing work on this, uh, but uh, probably Keegan is um, one of the better knowns. And I particularly like Jennifer Gary Berger's approach to this. So essentially it sort of says that uh, as we become more mature as people, we go through various stages. So one of them is like, in, initially when we are completely dependent on other people, uh, when we're kids. Uh, and then as we go through our teenage years, et cetera, we become sort of socialized, which is externally based. We're, we're, we're reacting to external cues to a large degree. Um, but if we mature beyond that point, we become what they call self-authoring. That is to say, we, we start to develop our own 
sense of agency, let's say, our own set of principles and values or maybe life philosophy, et cetera, uh, an, inner, an inner compass. Whenever somebody says that people should speak truth to power, for example, that's assuming that they can, but they have an inner compass, morals and principles that says, you know, this is not okay. I will speak truth to this power. Um, ultimately, they go into some kind of self-transformation, but the, it's the self-authoring that I'm most interested in here. Self-authoring means that you have an inner locus of control. You have an inner compass. So what happens when we build whole systems in our workplaces that are 100% focused on the assumption that unless we give you externally based feedback from other people about how you should, you know, develop yourself and grow and whatever, what you should be good at, et cetera, you're not developing and growing. Mm -hmm. A self-authored person uh, basically would ignore a lot of that because they're self-developing. They're self-regulating. Um, so to your point, um, whether it's basically positive or negative cues, that's part of the socialized mind. That's where we're entirely reliant on the external. And this is what we're on about with, uh, you know, our kids and teenagers and the whole thing about social media and being fixated on screens and everything. It's, it makes you entirely focused. Your attention is focused on external cues and feedback. Yeah. And dependence. Well. It's addiction. Yeah. It's yeah. addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's not mince words about this. We, be, we become addicted to that kind of thing. It absolutely 100% works. But here, so here, here would be my case. Let's, let's hypothetically say that you would be interested in having an organization filled with engaged people, uh, people who are capable of taking initiative, people who are capable of uh, seeing opportunities when they happen and jumping on them people who are capable of seeing injustice in play and speaking truth to power. Uh, people who are capable, custom honestly being, I'm sorry, David, but I have to say this, you know, assholes, uh, <laughs> to not take that, but to stand on principle, right? Yeah. You want principled people working for you. Yeah. People might who may even be capable of standing up to you as the boss mm -hmm. in case you are not incorrect or you are, you know, uh, proposing something that is placed by, based on flawed thinking. And then you build like, if you're interested in that kind of workplace and, you know, hypothetically speaking, there are some people who might not. They, 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 they would be most happy with having an organization full of compliant yes people. But let's say that you would be literally the worst kind of system for fostering those capabilities in people would be a feedback culture that is 100%, 100% based on like 360 degree feedback and uh, other people being the, the barometer whether you are doing things right or wrong. That's literally the case. Now, 
this is where I come toward like this. This is where I sort of come to a gray area that I'm still kind of working through. Let's say you walk into a meeting. Um, you say something, you know, bad joke, let's say. Um, or maybe, you know, it could be whatever, but you notice in the behavior of the people that some people are kind of disturbed by it or whatever. That's a feedback loop. Yep. Does it need somebody to sort of corner you up against the wall and give you like, David, I need to give you some feedback now. Yeah. Like the way that you entered this room now and what you said, like that's, that's really not okay. What you should do instead is, you know, X, Y, Z. No, you just automatically noticed that you came into this room, you said something, it did not get a good reception since you care about making a good expression, uh, impression, you probably are self-correct. Absolutely, because I've been in exactly that position where I've, I've, I have walked into a room or joined a team and I've said something that's, that's I mean, it's not yeah. rude or anything like that, but it's just not fitting with the, the culture as it, it exists at that time and it's not gone down well. And you're right, I've had to sort of self-correct. Um, but but you, 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 see some, you see some people in that situation who, who are not aware and don't self-correct and then continue, you know, and then it just yeah. tries to... So it's creating something else. So the thing that worries me is the type of feedback cultures that are that we're building, uh, which is which that are entirely sort of externally based uh, mm -hmm. from people. Yeah. It's making you less trusting of your own capabilities. Mm -hmm. You don't trust your own self-awareness. You don't trust your own self-regulation here. You don't trust that. You know, your moral compass is telling you to do something and that you and that's the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you because unless it's uh, externally based cues. Um, so what so what should we do instead? Um, this is where the nuanced view comes in. Um, I don't have to give you exactly feedback. Uh, so let's take that scenario like I come you come into the room, you say something, I'm in that room, you say, um, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit uh, disturbed by, or something you do sort of hits me in the wrong way. What we classically call feedback would be me saying, David, um, that's not okay here. You, you cannot say that kind of thing. You need to say something else instead. Me reacting to the thing, being a reactor too, would be say, David, I'm, I, when you say that, I feel a little bit disturbed. Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. You have data now. Yep. If you care about working with me, then you have something to build on. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and this is how we interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And as we mature, into becoming, you know, the, 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 what Keegan would call the self-authoring, etc. We have this kind of inner moral compass that helps us navigate situations and interactions with people and when to stand up for ourselves and when to collaborate with people and yeah. uh, when, when, when things are being dysfunctional, when um, all of these kinds of things. And we need to amplify rather than undermine our ability to trust and uh, essentially to further develop these kind of human human innate competencies that we have. Um, so 
so yeah that's that's kind of that's some of my thinking around feedback currently um i think like social media something like instagram and all of that kind of stuff like it's equally as dangerous to become reliant on positive cues yeah all of the time but of the two like i keep coming back to this thing like if we're totally ignored that's the that's the risky thing um then we feel a lack of connection um we have lack of cohesiveness we have lack of community we have lack of culture to some degree um to be appreciated for what we are or to, at least to be accepted for for who we are and how we show up in all our multiple variances i think I think that's what we should be aiming at. And, and, you know, Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall, they make that case in their book. What's the purpose of a team? Like if you, if you view, if you view team as a tool that humanity came up with, what's the purpose for this? Um, should we be aiming at fixing every individual so that we're all kind of almost clones of each other? Like we're all equally capable of everything. Or could it be the case that a team is this mechanism that we came up with so that we can take not well-rounded individuals, you know, people who have strengths and weaknesses in different areas, and we can combine them into working groups and teams that become well-rounded because we have these multiple competencies and skill sets and, and attitudes and you know, the whole diversity of uh, the cognitive diversity and the skill diversity and um, all of these kinds of things. So, but we have to create the, we have to create the conditions for, like, if, if we're going to have any chance of that, we have to have conditions where people can show up and be accepted and or embraced and, and appreciated for. Um, so... Yeah, I think we're completely on the wrong track with what most of us call, you know, the type of feedback culture that most organizations are spending enormous resources building. And it, it, and it, like, at the end of the day, we can just sort of, we can boil it down to this, can't we? Like, go to any large organization, quiz them, who here loves getting feedback? My question is a big zero. Yeah. Who here, love, the, uh, who here lo loves giving feedback? Another big bad zero, yeah. which is why we built a whole bloody industry around uh, training people in how to give feedback and training people in how to, you know. The only basic, the, the only kind of supported hypothesis, and, and I've seen this come out of the work of David Rock around his scarf model, etc. If we're going to create any kind of a feedback culture, it should not be a feedback culture oriented around giving feedback. It should be um, around a culture around essentially having the psychological safety to ask for feedback. Mm -hmm. um, that's the shortcut. When we ask for feedback, we automatically are open to whatever we hear. Under those conditions, we do not trigger our, you know, sympathetic system, which will f which fires up our threat detection, and shuts down our brains. Uh, 
than we're actually able to. And, and that's what athletes do to some degree. But the, but, but the biggest, and I, I do believe I, I, I wrote something about this in, in the chapter. Um, who do we ask for such feedback? Like if, I'm, if I know that I'm weak in an area, I've made the personal determination, I need to improve this area. Who do I go and ask? Mm. A stranger? Not likely. I ask somebody that I trust, that um, I'm, I'm, I'm um, sort of secure in the knowledge that, you know, they're doing it with my best intent, with my, my um, uh, what's the phrase that I'm looking for? Your best interests at heart. Exactly, the best interests. Um, so how do, how do I know that about somebody? Typically because I have that kind of dialogue with them. We show up for each other. We have each other's back. Um, I tend to like people who like me. That's, a, that, that's something that's demonstrated out of social psychology. I tend to trust people who trust me. I tend to appreciate, uh, like if people have, if people notice when I'm feeling good or when I'm feeling bad, when people, if people notice when I really got something right or like, you know, I was doing something and really hit the flow state and, you know, was really, and they bring my attention to this, like, yeah, when I when I need when I need some input about how can how I can improve something that's a weaker area, probably that's going to be the one I uh, go ask about it. Um, not the one who's consistently giving me critique. Sure. I, yeah. I, I couldn't give. I couldn't I, I couldn't have less of an interest in what they have to say. Um, so feedback has to be on my terms. So if there's any kind of feedback culture to be built, it has to be one where I ask for feedback uh, and then I listen to it. Well, you're introducing um, some affected bias there, Kelgi, apologies to cut in. Um, because if it's if it's a friend or someone you're close to, as you say, someone who's got your back, um, you know, if they, if they know you well, then they'll know, you know, how to then give that feedback. And it might not always be exactly as because they don't want to hurt your feelings or, or stuff like that so you've already you know you've reached into that that comfortable area almost that known that you'll get you know um pat on the back for the great things and you know and sugar-coated on the things that you didn't do well yep almost like that teenage um, thing we talked about with social media that that craving for likes and you know, and the, the, the favorable emojis or, or whatever, you know, you, you've kind of done that. Yeah. Whereas, whereas that, I almost take the opposite view and, and I'll go and take the person who I might not really know so well or, or get on with well and, and ask them and, and, and get a much more candid response from them because, you know, there's nothing for them to gain in it and there's nothing for, for me to lose in it really in the situation. And um, yeah, I open myself up to quite a, um, a difficult feedback sometimes and you know but it's it's, it's it's helpful well you bring into what you bring into the view here is like our individual sort of um variants i would say yeah. uh if you look into something like 
you know, the, the study of uh, Stephen Rees or uh, even into the, into the, with his Rees model of motivation, or if you look even into the, the, um, uh, the personality profiles, for example, the five factor mo model, etc. Um, one of the five factors, for example, is uh, neuroticism which means that to the degree that I measure high in that, I'm super sensitive to every, anything that can tr like, trigger stress, anxiety, that kind of thing. Um, if I'm very low, it almost needs to be the bloody third um, world war for me to sort of wake up to the fact that we have a problem here. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also have uh, a trait there called agreeableness. So people who are very low in that, they tend to not give uh, so much thought to what other people think of them. People who are very high there, um, they're very sensitive to that. And, and to your point, we can also become practiced. Um, if I start asking people for, uh, for feedback on my terms about things that I specifically want to improve, I may work myself up to the fact where, I, where I'm comfortable asking people I know less. Um, but yeah, there's a, there, there's a big difference. Like we have some ideas here. Like number one, I have to ask for it. Number two, go back to the former hypothetical situation. Um, I walk into a room, I say something. I notice that it doesn't have the, uh, the first impression or the impression that I want. I noticed that you, a friend of mine, or somebody that I at least know a little bit, you're also in there. Um, I'm a little bit clueless. I don't really know what it was that you know happened in there. So I might approach you afterwards and say, you know, David, um, I wonder if I could get your opinion on something. I noticed when I, that when I came in there and I threw that offhand comment, it seemed to be some people seemed to be a little bit disturbed. I don't really know why that is. Do you have any? insight into that for me and and then we could connect the, the other thing i mean it, it's 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 one thing for you to tell me about your reaction yeah um yeah i know i noticed when you used a certain word or a certain phrase or something uh some people are not very comfortable with that versus going a step further and say what you should probably say instead is and then you tell me what to say yeah yeah then you're then you're telling me to say something that would work for you yeah. but we're not the yes. same people mm -hmm. it most likely would not work for me or at least not in the same way mm -hmm. anybody who's worked in sales knows this how 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 well do the sales sort of scripts work when you follow the same formula, everybody says we're baiting the exact same thing. There's a reason why we left that world uh, like decades ago. We used to work that work like that. We don't anymore. It's just we know better. It has to be individualized. We have to take into account that we're all unique. We're all we all. Um, so that's and that's a like I would zoom it out to this. There's a disconnect. We know a lot of this. We know it from an awful lot. We know it, we know it from raising kids. Uh, we know it from you know participating in observing sports. We know it from interacting with friends. We know it from 
uh, all kinds of scenarios. Yeah. We know it from interacting with family, for example, probably pretty intuitively. And yet we flip the script when we come into the workplace and, that's the thing, and ignore it? every and ignore everything that works in the real world. Yeah. And, and that's that's what I'm hearing um, on a regular basis now, Helge, is that, that that people tend to act very differently in the workplace than they do outside of work. And so when we talk about work life balance, what is that balance? You know, um, I know Pierre Marie has mentioned a few times, he's, he's a great advocate of there's no work-life balance, there's just life balance. And so the same person out of work is the same person inside work. Your vocabulary and the way that you speak or engage with people might be slightly different, but your core values and principles are still the same. Yeah, but but that sort of presupposes like, um, like here's one of the things we know intuitively, right? If we're doing our job, if, if we're parents, you know, that I think not everybody is. But if we have healthy ambitions for the kids that we're raising, we want them to be sort of self self-supporting, um, fully capable individuals, you know, when they when they leave the comfort comforting embrace of whatever home that we're sort of establishing for them. Able to navigate through the various complexities of life with a healthy inner set of values and principles and a compass like you know life lessons that we've probably hope to instill or, or hope that they've learned somewhere yeah. um what if we were to instead hobble our kids what if that was our strategy <laughs> we have we have to direct them yeah. other in everything otherwise they don't know what to do uh they need to get external feedback cues on everything that they do otherwise how would they know um carol sanford makes an interesting case she goes a little bit deep into it um but in her her book essentially although it's not meant as any kind of that kind of book uh, gives a very brief but really comprehensive overview of sort of the different kinds of systems thinking and one of the one of the things that she sort of paints up is that there's only one type of system that is entirely re reliant on external input a closed system yep uh like the engine of a car or the battery on your phone like if you don't juice it up from the outside uh, it stops working yep. but we people are not closed systems we are interactive systems we work, you know, the, the external works on us, but we work on the external as well. And um, so this kind of feedback culture, which is externally based, I think we're, I think we're, tre we're treating people as something they aren't. Mm -hmm. We should be treating them better. We should be making the conditions better. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately we should be able to, we should be aiming at making people self-navigating Mm -hmm. um, so that they can connect and collaborate and do all of the wondrous things that we know that they're able to do. So um, I don't know. I don't know if there's a conclusion to be had here, um, but um, I, just I would sort of round up. This 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 was a big um, 
I was very quite inspired when I read this. I can highly recommend another book here, by the way, Nine Lies About Work by Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. So they make this case. It is a lie that people need feedback. Mm. What we need instead is attention. Mm. We want attention from the people around us. We want to know that we fit in. We want to know that we are a part of something bigger than us. And um, negative attention, negative feedback just doesn't, isn't fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, ignoring people isn't fit for purpose either. The only thing that tends to do the trick is to accept and embrace and appreciate people for who they are and how they show up. Mm -hmm. And if they ask us for help uh, to get some insight into how they might improve, you know, let's accommodate them not by telling them what to do, but by rather describing how we experience it, uh, react, how our reactions to whatever, whatever it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and essentially doing our best to both become ourselves, um, sort of fully mature individuals capable of having an inner compass that guides us through complex and tricky issues mm -hmm. and helping other people, you know, uh, do the same. Fantastic. Appreciate that. Okay. And if I put the question to, to Flo, Flo, in, in terms of our, our remediation or our remedial steps in that direction, from an HR perspective, how would you see your role in that? From an HR perspective? Um, that, that's really interesting. I think that um, I think the first thing would be probably from a child perspective is what does the company use the feedback for? What is the purpose of feedback in the company? So maybe revisiting with uh, the, the management team, you know, the why, why feedback and to what effect. Uh -huh. um, so to at least engage in the reflection of what is it that we really expect from the feedback and, and, and uh, maybe a little bit more concretely see what kind of outcome that has. Um, also talking with people to get the kind of their feedback directly on how you know, effective it is. And if we wanted to keep some form of feedback, what kind of feedback would be actually helpful yeah. in the organization? Uh -huh. So probably what I would look into is engaging maybe, you know, a dialogue actually between managers and employees on, you know, feedback. Um, how useful is it and uh, um, how should it, what it should look like um, as a kind of system, if we want to keep it as a kind of system within the organization around performance management, if they still have it or whatever. So if there isn't a decision is to keep it, um, is, is how can we transform it? And then I think that you know, the, the key point for me would be developing the ability of people to self-reflect and give feedback to them, you know, themselves and that would certainly be also through looking in what kind of training and support we give managers and employees to develop that skill because uh, they or and to encourage that so to, to, to help them very concretely there and then I think that you know broadly this will stick if the environment is what we call an agile environment where people feel safe to think about themselves and come up with you know what right in this situation i can feel that i was not you know at my best um i'd like to do something about it but you need to feel safe to be able to self-reflect in this way and do something about it so 
it's I think it's, this is where it's all very dependent, isn't it? So the book and each of the chapter, I think each chapter works because the other chapter is implemented in the company, right? <laughs> it, it all works because it's a good cycle, right? Absolutely. Uh, so you need some other elements of this teamwork and the collaboration and the psychological safety. So you need to make sure that, you know, all the other bits are going to be addressed because if you're just addressing feedback, it's just probably just going to be one of those other HR initiatives where you ask for people to contribute, but at the end of the day, it's just not going to stick. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah indeed. And all I'm hearing there is demand, demand, demand. And this is, I guess, where Agile People come in. So you are listening to the Agile People podcast. We are talking about the chapters in the book, um, Agile People Principles, your call to action for the future of work. Never put so more relevantly than you just put there, Flo. Absolutely. Um, Helgi, as an observer, as a, um, um, a director of Agile People, what did, what did you actually hear from Flo there in terms of that? Um, hopefully you're hearing the same things. Training opportunities, remedies, solutions. The, the magic thing that I heard there the, is that it has to be an open dialogue. It can't be a set of few that determine this for the set of the whole. Um, I would add to it that the dialogue also has to be like the question has to be asked. If you could tell me, you could create the psychological safety and the level of trust that we feel comfortable talking about such things. If you could tell me Under what conditions, or how can, uh, or how can we contribute? Um, like, when is it that you feel that when you when you're learning something, when you're growing, when you're de developing, when you're improving? My guess is that when you start asking those questions, there, you're going to hear a lot of answers that will undermine your current feedback, and then that sort of um, puts the focus on you. Are you courageous enough to listen and to adapt your current practices? I was asked this question once, what would be my tip? I don't think we can abolish the culture of feedback overnight. So my, my, if I were to advocate for any kind of approach, at least as an initial step would be hijack the current structure, which is mostly focused on giving negative and start emphasizing, um, you know, appreciative feedback instead. Use the same structures that you're currently using. And then over time, start asking questions, which of the, like, start iterating on that, start adapting from there and uh, grow it into the kind of thing that actually supports the, the growth and development of what you want. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, thank you for that, Helga. That was um, greatly appreciated there. Um, so, yes, um, this was your chapter, Given Received Positive Feedback. I know that you submitted it last year and you've had lots of reflection time um, since then. And mm -hmm. give us some great opportunities and tips um, along the way. That's been fantastic. We will look forward to seeing you again on another podcast, um, Helga. I do appreciate that. I think um, we'll wrap things up for um, in a few minutes. Um, Flo, do you have one last question you'd like to ask? Helgi just now? No, I think I've covered all my questions. It was fascinating. Thank you very much, Helgi.
It was. It was very intellectual discussions there, and um, yeah, absolutely enjoyed it. One thing before we go, Helgi, last word to yourself. I am very interested in your um, hobby. I hopefully don't mind you. It's the last section of your chapter here. Um, and your great ho hobby, we've talked about this before, is um, Argentinian tango. Very disciplined, mm -hmm. very passionate, very sort of, um, you know, um, gracefully um, um, da dance. Um, um, if you can call it that, that's, I think that oversimplifies. I think there's more to it than just a simple dance, isn't there? But um, I think it was an example that um, you were given some feedback on that, if you'd like to share that. I think, yeah, the, the, the example that I used from the book. Uh, so when I was, uh, yeah, first when I moved to Gothenburg, I was, I've been doing it for maybe a year. So, you know, not exactly a complete newbie, but mostly a newbie, like an advanced beginner, maybe. Um, so this was one of my social activities. It was a lifesaver of sorts. Uh, like I was stuck at home for the most part, completely sort of, you know, I didn't really have people to talk to, didn't speak the language found a very sort of receptive uh, welcoming in the tango community here in Gothenburg, which is very um, lively, with the exception of the last year, let's say. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was this one scenario quite early on, I think it was maybe the first time or the second time when I sort of showed up, uh, hoping to meet some interesting people and, and socialize a bit. Um, so I asked somebody up there and midway through she started just she stopped me on the floor and started correcting my posture and doing all kinds of things. And there's an unspoken rule actually in tango that this is uh, this is forbidden you don't do that at a social evening, they have uh, different uh, different uh, types of events called uh, so a milonga is something that's a social event, a practica is a practice event. So I was at a milonga and she stopped me and started doing this and like being new to the community, uh, not very, very comfortable in my skills. Um, yeah, it was embarrassing, uh, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> not not the first impression that you want to kind of make. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I, so after that, uh, after that particular thing, like, uh, she did not go on my list of favorites, let's say. So I didn't ask her up again. Um, I think you asked me the question, did I ever do it again? I think yeah. at some point I did, but at that point I was comfortable in my uh, sort of um, comfortable in my skills there. Uh, so I was doing it on my terms. And um, um, so, yeah. And did you and did you offer any feedback on, on how you progressed or, or did you um, ask or, or seek? How well you were doing or did you just leave it at that uh no she did not i did not ask uh it was not that kind of occasion like i said okay. this is actually one of the great things about tango uh, this is one of those social rules because you have people coming into it uh, at various levels of skills from rank amateurs and beginners to people very so one of the one of the rules of thumb is if you are more advanced and you invite somebody who is not um, you do not pressure them uh, or manipulate them to do techniques or stuff that you know how to do. You adapt to their level. And the golden rule is you always make your partner preferably look good and feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that's that's the responsibility you have as the more advanced person. I've always had that as a golden rule. I I use it other in other places as well. I use it in my coaching and a lot of my collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's not my job to make another person look bad in in in, in front of other people. Um, if anything, I need to make them look good and feel good. So, um, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Helge Goodmanson. That we shall leave it on that note. I could not put it more eloquently myself. Thank you very much. Um, to Helge Goodmanson, um, Agile People Director and Leadership Guru, and Flo Kaminska, our HR Specialist and Extraordinaire from Agile People Collective. Thank you very much and good day. Thank you, guys. I'm very appreciative of this opportunity to have this chat. Thank you.